not chapter 6, but chapter 36. Now, some of you are wondering, I read, a, I read ahead, and I wonder if he's going to spend this week on one chapter, if he's going to go on to Joseph. Well, in case you love genealogies, here we go. We are going to stay in chapter 36 this week because that all Scripture is inspired by God, but not all Scripture is nearly as inspiring as others. And yet, in this chapter, we see that God is interested in people, individual people, even those people that choose to live outside of the grace of God. And so as we look at the life of Esau, and I'll say this multiple times, but it needs to get through. In Genesis chapter 36, we see the line of Esau that becomes the nation of Edom. And if you remember, in Genesis, we've already seen when Isaac and Rebekah were pregnant. And Rebekah had twins. And she had all this turmoil inside of her womb. And she said, Lord, why is this turmoil taking place? This is outside of the normal turmoil. And and the Lord said to her very graciously that there are two nations dwelling within your womb. And they are warring against each other. And in us as believers, there are two nations. There's a war going on in you. I'm not talking about between family members. I'm not talking about the the global wars going on between nations. I'm not even talking about political wars between the right and the left and everybody in between. I'm talking about the real battle that God is the most concerned with, and that is the battle between the flesh, the fleshly nature, and the spirit. And so as we talk about Jacob and Israel this morning, Israel and Esau this morning. This is a very clear picture of the battle that wages in our personal lives. The battle between the spirit and the flesh. And what we're going to find out is that the flesh is very very potential it has a lot of potential. And it's like weeds in a garden. If it's not pulled out at the roots, if it's not dealt with brutally, then what it does is it multiplies in our life. And it's like the parable, you've probably heard the modern day parable of the, the the white wolf and the black wolf. And whichever one you feed becomes the strongest. And what we see in the, in the life of, of Esau is that he is very prominent and he grows very quickly and he multiplies greatly. And yet what we're going to see is that the, the spirit will prevail. And so, in Genesis chapter 36, as we begin, it says, this is the genealogy of Esau. And I'm just going to stop for a minute. Can you guys mute maybe the microphones up here? I'm getting some feedback a little bit. So this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. So he, he did exactly what his parents had made obvious that they were against. Don't take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And so they take great pains to send their children that they care about back to uh, the land that they came from to gain a bride or a husband. In this case, it was the bride. So Esau, much to his parents' chagrin, took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholibama, that's a great name, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Bashimath, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nebajoth. Now, Adah 
bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Bashamath bore Rule, and Aholibamah bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. So at this point, he still lives in the, the promised land that God gave to Abraham. And he's, he's going to provide for Isaac. And then he's going to pass on the blessing to Jacob. But at this point, Esau is still living in the land that God has promised to his forefathers. Now, he's not going to gain it as his inheritance personally, but he's still dwelling there. And yet he marries women who are outside of Canaan against his parents' wishes. So I have there for you uh, Genesis chapter 26 and verse 34 and 35. There we see... At the time, it seemed uh, kind of odd that it just threw it in there. But in verse 34, after speaking about Isaac and Abimelech and some other things going on, it says, When Esau was 40 years old, he took as wives Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Bashimoth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Well, that's interesting because we just read in Genesis 36 and there was no Judith there. There was a woman by the name of Aholibamah. So what's going on? Well, you'll notice that it gives where she came from. A Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite. And I have there for you on the third bullet point there, Judith, also known as, there's an alias here, Aholibamah, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite. Now, there could have been many reasons that he married this woman and then changed her name. I believe what happened here is a holy Bama, she's the daughter of Beri the Hittite. And if you remember, there's several wells in the book of Genesis mentioned. There's Beersheba, the well of the oath, and Beer, the, that, that uh, whatever it is, it's, it's at the beginning of the word, actually means well. And so it's believed that Beri, the Hittite, was, you know, maybe you'd be an oil tycoon today. If you struck oil on your property, you'd be like, you know, so-and-so, the oil tycoon. And, and then you would be known by that. Well, in the Middle East, where there's not much water, you find water, and it's really more important than oil, especially in their day. And so here he is uh, perhaps a water tycoon. And so... Uh, Esau, wanting to be strong in industry, uh, marries very smartly. He marries somebody that has water. But then at the same time, he marries his daughter, whose name is Aholibama, which means literally tent at the high place. A tent on a high place in the land of Canaan was a worship facility for pagan religions. And one of the ways that they would gain converts to their idolatry and their, their it would be... Uh, temple priestesses, but let's call it what it is, prostitutes. And so they would commit fornication in their worship, these foreign gods, and no doubt, in order to be proficient at that profession, you better be good looking. And so uh, no doubt Esau was a man's man, and so he saw this woman and he said, give me her as a bride. And so he marries a prostitute. By the way, not a great idea. Um, uh, there's actually an entire prophecy written about this, and if you can think of it, tell me this week. A little Bible trivia for you, a little homework. But then he's going to bring her home. 
And so if you're going to bring a girl home to your folks, uh, you're not going to go, hey, check it out. I brought home a temple prostitute. Not going to uh, bring home tent at the high place, or I heard one guy say this week, uh, shady lady. She's a tent on a high place. She's shady lady. And so he's met this shady woman, and he renames her Judith, which just so happens to mean Jewishness. So he, that's what the flesh does, right? We, we sin, and then we come up with a really nice name for our sin. I'm not committing fornication. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm uh, having an affair. Boy, that sounds way better. It doesn't, but it does. Sounds better than fornication. I, I'm not committing sexual sin with the same sex. Uh, I'm, I'm gay. I'm happy. And so we kind of cover up our sins. We, we call them some, We don't even use the word sin in our modern day vernacular. What do we call it? I made a mistake. Well, mistakes, everybody makes mistakes. Right. Yeah, that's what the, actually what the Bible teaches. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why Jesus came. To, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And so all that to say, there's other wives involved here. He multiplies wives. And it says there, and Bashimath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Bashimath literally means spice girl, by the way. Spice girl. Now, it's not like we're thinking, you know, tell me what I want, what do you really, really want? You know, that, not that kind of spice girl. She probably was a tri- trader of spices. I don't know. Uh, maybe she was spicy. Maybe she had a, a sharp tongue. You know, maybe she was, you know... And you've met these girls, like, they speak like truckers. But man, they, they see, they're wild and they're kind of exciting to men for whatever reason. But, you know, they get to about their 40s or 50s and they, they sound like they've been smoking palm malls their whole life. You meet these ladies in the bar. Um, all of that is just conjecture. But what I'm getting at is she was not of the people that she should be marrying. She was not the marrying type. And by the end of it, um, it seems that he gave her another. He gave her a new name too. She was daughter of Elon, not Elon Musk, but Elon the Hittite. And um, she, he renamed her Adah, which means adorned one or adornment. She, you know, and, and that's Proverbs thirty-one. Uh, the woman that's described, she's adorned with beauty, and and she's. You know, she's uh, a business per. you know, like she, she does all she can to take care of her, her home. And so he renames her. And that's, again, the flesh always goes out and does things and then justifies it and renames it so it can feel better about what it just did. And so there was another uh, wife by the name of Bashimoth or Mahaloth, which actually means you make me sick. So I wonder if she was the first or the second wife, and she, her name was originally Spice Girl, and then as she got to know her, it was like, she kind of makes me sick. The flesh is, by the way, never content. Uh, someone that's marrying multiple wives, or maybe some of you have known someone, or, or you've been at a spot in your marriage before where you kind of start looking around because the person you're married to, you're no longer content, and this person kind of makes you sick to your stomach. And, and that's what the flesh does. It cannot be content with what God has provided. And so look at this. Uh, Mahalath is actually a daughter of Ishmael. 
and a sister of Nebajoth, which is the same description uh, from previous chapters in chapter 28. So not only does Esau go out and marry Canaanite women, but then he goes out and marries uh, the bride of uh, his, let's see, I'm trying to get this right, his father's brother, Ishmael, who came from a relationship that never should have happened. He marries an Ishmaelite. And so um, this this a child of the slave woman has had offspring, and now Esau is joining leagues with, with Ishmael. And so all that to say, um, Esau then, uh, having uh, been married multiple times and, and then had sons, uh, verse 6 says, Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle and all his animals, and all his goods, which he had gained in the land of Canaan. He was blessed in the land of God's blessing. Notice that despite his disobedience, God's grace is still upon his life. Now, whether he would call it that or not, I don't know. Uh, But it seems to me that uh, even though he despised his birthright from the very beginning, remember, he sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of beans, He sold it for a meal that would give him indigestion and he'd be hungry a few hours later. He despised what was holy in order to gain what temporarily would make him feel awesome. And so he went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. He did not remain in the place that God had blessed because... Him and his brother had so many possessions and cattle. They were very successful. And and the land where they were strangers could no longer support them because of their livestock. Does this sound familiar to you? There was another story in Genesis chapter 13 where Abraham, the one that originally gained the promise from God, had a nephew by the name of Lot. And he gave his nephew Lot preference and he said, you pick the land before the land is before you. You pick where you, you want to go, and then I'll go. If you turn to the right hand, I'll go to the left. And if you turn to the left hand, I'll go to the right. And they, they parted ways because they were so overrun with blessings. Who doesn't like blessings? And yet, if what you gain in this world, the blessings that God gives you, become your God. And seeking those things becomes more important to you than the God who gave them. You're in a dangerous spot. You're at a crossroads. You're either going to land up in where Esau's going to go, which is outside of God's protection, outside of the land of God's grace and blessing, or you'll remain there and go, hey, I'm, I'm staying here. This is where God told me to be. So Esau is a type of the flesh, And he loves the blessings of God. And who doesn't? But the flesh, though it loves the blessing of God, it prefers to dwell outside of the influence of God. Let me say that again. The flesh loves the blessings of God, but it always despises what looks like the, the, the God influencing or controlling our lives. Oh yeah, many people out there, if you told them, hey, uh, you can be saved and you don't have to do anything to, to get it, that's, that's a wonderful message. But there's also a time where we have to come to a place of maturity where we recognize that God's salvation is a free gift, but he saved us 
for good works. He saved us to walk with him, and that means that a lot of the old fleshly ways have to die and be put away. He doesn't always force that right away, but he calls for us to live a life, not just a moment of repentance and faith, but a lifestyle of forsaking sin, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, and to walk in the way everlasting with him. He cannot bless sin. And and even in Romans, Paul writes, he says, if God saved me, then why not continue in sin if his grace will abound when I'm forgiven? Should we continue in sin because grace will, God will save us from us? And he says, perish the thought. That's a horrible idea. If God died so we could have our sin forgiven, how can we any longer want to dwell in it? And so the flesh also prefers to maintain distance from God's people. The flesh prefers to dwell outside of the control or the influence of God. Jesus even said to his disciples, to those that were following him, they said, he said, why do you call me Lord and Master and yet not do the things that I do? Not do the things that I, I command. So the flesh also prefers to maintain distance from the people of God because guess what? Their lives are so weird and wacky. And, and their influence, and it, it's convicting to me. I'd rather not be convicted of my sin. I'd rather be around people that will just encourage me to live my life. But all that he gained in Canaan, he took with him. The stuff, which is really all he was interested in. But he missed out on the spiritual blessings. I'm going to turn real quickly to Mark in chapter 8, where Jesus spoke pretty clearly on this. Mark chapter 8. In verse 34, it says there, When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to keep or save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so giving up the world in order to gain what you can keep. Salvation and a relationship with Jesus. Now notice, he left because he and Jacob were so blessed that they didn't have room. They had more livestock than the land could support. And then he went to dwell in a place called Seir, or Mount Seir. It's a mountain range south and east of the Dead Sea. So I have a map there for you. I'm going to zoom in real quick. And right there on the map, you might be able to see a place called Edom. Now on the upper right-hand corner, you see the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea. And this is south of the Sea of Galilee. And just below that, you see the Jordan River go off to the right. And south of that is a place called Edom. 
And there in Edom is where Esau went to dwell. And he dwelled there because there was a whole outcropping of mountains called Mount Seir. It was kind of the chief of those mountains. Now there's a place there that we studied when we talked about the book of Revelation uh, called Petra. And Petra is very famously in uh, Indiana Jones movies. And there they go on the horses. And there's only one way to get through there. And it can actually be defended. It's a stronghold. There's a city called Petra. It's a stronghold, and it can be defended by 6 to 12 soldiers, which is pretty amazing. They didn't have to build the walls. It's naturally there. So many believe that Esau went there because it was a stronghold. It was a place that could easily be defended. And who doesn't want to take their help from the mountains surrounding them? And so Esau goes there, and he propagates, and he actually intermarries with all of the people that already live there. And so all that to be said, um, Edom is Esau. So I didn't finish reading those verses. Verse 7, their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So... Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Now, from this point forward in Scripture, Edom is a nation. Remember, I couched this whole discussion with the fact that Rebekah had been told, in your womb are two nations, right? One nation is Israel, and one nation will become Edom. And Edom is uh, run by and has come from Esau, which is a symbol of the flesh and pride. So in verse 9, and this is the genealogy, you guys' favorites, the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites, and Mount Seir. And so we're going to read all of his descendants, but before we do, I want to point out that in the Old Testament, Edom is mentioned 130 times. That's quite a bit of mention. But he's mentioned here because he's going to become a a major foe of the the people of Israel. And by the way, the spirit is always warring against the flesh. The the flesh is always warring against the spirit. They, They don't like to coexist. They don't like to remain together. Uh, Jesus even said, if you have two masters, you'll either hate the one and love the other, or you'll hate this one and you'll love that other. Because all of them, both of them are always trying to be in charge. So Israel, when they were in Egypt and they were enslaved for 400 years, God sent Moses to deliver them. But as they were headed back, and we all know the story, they crossed the Red Sea miraculously by the power of God. And as they crossed the Red Sea with Moses from Egypt, they come up to, and I have there for you on the map, they come up to a, a place right there at number six where they're going to cross over Edom so then they can cross south of the Dead Sea into the land of Canaan there in Moab. But in order to get there, they have to cross Edom. And so you would think, remember, when Edom came into contact with Jacob, as, as Jacob comes back from the land of Paddan Aram, he's gained a wife. He has several other wives. He has all of his children. And, and there Jacob wrestles with God because he's afraid, because Esau wants to kill him. And so as he's coming back into the land, 
He's wrestling with God because he's afraid his brother is going to harm him. And so he does all these gymnastics trying to get ready for this meeting. And what happens is something that Jacob does not expect. His brother receives him with a hug and a kiss, and he's excited to see him. He misses him. They weep over each other. It's been 20 years. But even though Esau greeted his brother back, many years later, when Israel's people have been in slavery for 400 years in Egypt, and they come back into the land, they're trying to come back into the land, what happens is Edom meets him with a cold stare. Edom meets them and says, none shall pass, as it says in Lord of the Rings. They're trying to get back into the land, and Edom, who is Jacob's brother, says, you can't, can't sit here. You can't come through here. And Jacob there in, in Exodus actually even pleads and says, please, please let me in. And I'm going to turn really quickly to Numbers chapter 20. Because there in uh, Numbers chapter 20, in verse 14, it says, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel. He, he reminds him, hey, we're your family. Um, you know all the hardship that has befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we dwelt in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice, sent the angel, brought us out of Egypt. Now here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from wells. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. Can you please let us play through? But we promise we won't touch anything. And Edom said to him, You shall not pass through my land, lest I come against you with the sword. So the children of Israel said to him, We will go by the highway, and if I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I'll pay you for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. And then he said, You shall not pass through. So Edom came out against with many men. And with a strong hand, thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. But then if you fast forward to Numbers chapter 21, it says there in verse 4, they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. If you can't go through, you've got to go around. And the soul of the people during this This traveling became very discouraged on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? We're not going to make it. For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. And so now they're going to get judged for this because they're complaining against God. But my point is, is that Edom was not a good neighbor. Uh, They were no longer friendly with the Israelites. And by the way, there is a time where the flesh and the spirit try to make friends. Esau received his brother back, right? Until his brother wouldn't do what he wanted him to. And now Edom, though they were once friends or seemed to be, the flesh is rearing its ugly head and going, hey, I don't like you anymore. Uh, I'm king, you're not. 
And the flesh, Edom, is always going to try and reign over the spirit and shut down anything that God's doing in you spiritually. The flesh will rear its ugly head, and it needs to be beat down again. And so here we have uh, this, this battle between the flesh and the spirit, and yet I want to point out God's response towards Edom. Because many times we see how God deals with people, and we think, wow, he's, he's not very gracious, and he's kind of hateful. And yet, if you turn to Deuteronomy in chapter 23, as the people are at this point in Deuteronomy come into the land and Moses is going to tell them the law again, and he's talking about those who can be allowed into the congregation for worship in the temple or the tabernacle, it says there uh, that several shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. And yet there in Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 7 He says this about Edom. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. He's been pretty rough to you as a people, but he's still your brother. And then he says, you shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were an alien in his land. And then he says, the children of the third generation born to these two may enter the assembly of the Lord. Boy, God's grace. These people are not allowed in, but your brother and the Egyptian, for whatever reason, he says these two, the third generation, not the first, not the second generation, they can't be allowed in. They've treated you very harshly. But I want to offer the ability to come into my presence by the Edomite of the third generation. Merciful. God is merciful. And it's actually a foretype of what God would do through the nation of Israel because as they become a greater and greater nation, and then through them, he brings King David, and then the descendant of David, Jesus Christ. Salvation at this point is no longer just for the Jew. And by the way, it never was. Salvation was never for just the Jews. The Jews, God's heart for them was that they would be blessed so they would be a blessing to all nations. His heart was not that they would perish or be judged or experience God's wrath. Ezekiel chapter 33 says that it's not the pleasure of the Lord to to put the wrath of God on the unbeliever, but that they should turn, repent of their sin, and believe in the one true and living God and be invited into a place of worship and relationship with Him. And so, fast-forwarding into history of Edom, they were subject to Israel in the days of Saul and David. They, become, they became a part of Israel, and actually Saul and David would have outcroppings of military posts right there in Edom for in case their enemy nations would come to attack them. But then fast-forwarding a little bit, uh, if you look at uh, King Ahab's son Joram uh, in the future, as they split as a kingdom, Israel's in the north, ten tribes, two tribes in the south, Judah, and yet King Ahab was so sinful. He actually married the woman that you might think of by the name of Jezebel. That's why none of you named your kids Jezebel. Unless I'm wrong, there's always an exception. If you don't know the Bible story, you might think, that's a beautiful name. But Jezebel, not great. Um, So much sin, so much idolatry that God had to judge the northern tribes. And when he did, they lost battles and they lost Edom as part of their territory. So they became independent again. By the way, when you give over your 
your flesh to serve idols and sin, um, the flesh starts to take back territory that the spirit had once conquered. The flesh is always trying to take back what it's lost. And so fast forwarding then again to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they prophesied against Edom. And in Jeremiah chapter 49, I know you guys have spent a lot of time there lately, uh, Jeremiah chapter 49 in verse 17 and 18, and really the whole chapter is judgment against Edom, starting there in verse 7 in chapter 49 of Jeremiah, it says, against Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Teman? And we'll find out that Teman is actually one of the descendants, direct descendants from Esau. They prided themselves in the wisdom that Teman apparently had. Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? Flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan. For I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him, the time that I will punish him. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleaning grapes? If thieves by night, would they not destroy until they have enough? But I have made Esau bare. I have uncovered his secret places, and he shall not be able to hide himself. His descendants are plundered. They had all these hide places of worship. They had all these secret places. And they had this uh, impenetrable force. It says he shall not be able to hide himself anymore in the rocks and the crags. And then I will make him desolate. Verse 11, leave your fatherless children. I will preserve them alive and let your widows trust in me. He says, when I judge your nation, when I take out your soldiers, when I destroy your men of battle, I still promise a future and a hope. He says, your fatherless children, let me take care of them. He says, I will preserve them alive and let your widows trust in me. Those that lose their husbands in battle, I will take care of them, says the Lord. So he's going to punish the nation of Edom, and yet he's willing to take care of those who are left behind. God's so gracious. And Ezekiel is, has similar prophecies about Basra, uh, which is also modern-day Petra. And then if you read the book of Obadiah, he prophesied that, that the nation of Edom, south of the Salt Sea there, would actually come to nothing other than now there's outposts and Bedouins living there, uh, people that roam the desert and have their, their um, livestock with them. And this has come to fruition even today. There is no more Edom. There are no more people there. It's a desolate wasteland. I actually think, you can fact check me on this, that they filmed some of the movie Mars in that place. Because if you sit up on the stronghold of David and you look over the Salt Sea to the east, there's actually a place that looks just like the movie Mars. Um, And you see all the desert and the dust blowing. And so one more notable descendant of Edom would be Herod the Great. Uh, Many of you might know many of his exploits, uh, but one of which, one of his most infamous is the one, he's the one who tried to kill the young child Jesus. So even later on, years and years, descendants later, uh, the, the descendant of Jacob is Jesus Christ from the line of Joseph. And he's the heir to the throne. He's the one true king. And yet King Herod, who is a king now in their time, King Herod 
tries to kill He's a descendant. He's an Idumean. He's a descendant of Esau. Esau is still trying to kill Jacob. Esau is still trying to rule over the spirit and put him to silence. And so, sorry, I kind of geeked out on that for a while. And it's probably way more exciting to me than it is to you. But I think it's so amazing that as I started the week and I studied this chapter, I'm, I'm looking at it going, do I want to take this much time to look at it? But I don't think it would be in there if God didn't want us to look into it. And, and so now we're going to go through Esau's legacy. Uh, verse 10 through 14 is Esau's sons and his grandsons. Uh, verse 15 through 19 is going to be the tribal chiefs, or some of your translations, if you're reading the King James, it says the dukes, the dukes of Esau. So these would be kind of like in, in early on Europe when they had these city-states. They had the, the, the rulers within these small regions, and they were essentially the dukes or the chiefs of the land. Um, one of which is notable in verse 16, uh, Chief Amalek. And if you remember, when they go into uh, defeat the land of Canaan, the first tribe that they come across is the Amalekites. And the Amalekites are a type of the flesh. And because they don't utterly wipe them out, by the way, because they don't ever really take them all out, they're always rearing their ugly heads. So from the time of the Exodus, where they go into the land of Canaan, they don't utterly wipe them out, although they have to battle with them for each future generation. And I encourage you to read these, um, these references here. But then fast forward to the days of King Saul in 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God says, I want you to go in and utterly wipe out the Amalekites. You have one job. Go out and wipe out the Amalekites. He wipes them all out except for the king of the Amalekites. He keeps the leader alive. And by the time Samuel gets there, he goes, why didn't you utterly wipe them out? And he was like, well, I, because that's what people say when they don't obey all the way. They go, well, I I had an idea other than yours. I thought my idea was better. And yet the Lord is saying, no, no, they need to be judged. We need to deal ruthlessly with the flesh. We need to let God kill our past sin. And so verse 20 through 30 are the sons of Seir. You might call them the natives of the land. They were there before Edom went in and took over. And it says there that they made marriages with them, and kings came from them. And this verse 41 through 43 are the chiefs of Edom according to their locations. And so I didn't read through all those, and you're welcome. You can read through them and botch their names on your own. There's so much more to this chapter that I don't have time to get into. But again, two nations are in your womb, Rebecca. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. And the reality is, You and I all have fruit coming from our lives. Each one of us are birthing two nations. If we can walk in the Spirit, we will birth the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. All of which there is no law against. Because this is the fruit that comes from the life that is subjected to the one true King. And yet... Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Verse 
Galatians chapter 5. If you get to Colossians, go back. That's what I just did. Galatians chapter 5. Verse 19. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, or they're able to be seen, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. Now you might think, well, I'm not a sorcerer. What what does that mean? The word there is pharmakia, and it's where we get our idea of using or abusing drugs or substances to get other consciousness. Hatred, contentions, and maybe you're thinking, I don't do drugs and I've never murdered anybody. How about jealousy? By the way, most of what fueled Esau's fleshliness was his jealousy over his brother. Don't tell me there's no fruit to jealousy. Don't tell me there's no fruit to contentions within within relationships. Outbursts of wrath. So, if you want to, you can underline that and then you can pray for me because that's what I struggle with. When I'm the most crushed down upon, I have outbursts of wrath. I get angry. I was just telling my wife this morning, I'm so tired of getting angry and acting upon it. Lord, please root out my sin. I don't want to have the fruit of my life be like Edom, which is bitterness. Maybe I won't hurt somebody, but maybe my children will be emboldened. Dad's angry. Why can't I be? Um, so outburst of wrath. Selfish ambitions. Dissensions. Heresies. Envy. Murders. Drunkenness. Revelry. And the like. All of these things, by the way, we have better words for. We call them something more palatable. But God calls them the fruit of the flesh. He calls it sin. He says, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean you do it once, by the way. That means those who continue in it and are not broken about it. Those who are not willing to repent of sin. And so, all of this time spent on looking at Esau, not to judge him, but to say, Lord, root out the the Esau in me. Root out the worldliness in me. I think there's one more slide. My little clicker's not working. Time for a new battery. It's battery, by the way, not battery. We all know that. So the flesh. One nation that tries to rule and reign now. I want my will, my way, my timing in its own strength. The Spirit, one nation that allows God to be in charge, laying down its rights to follow the way of the one true king. Both kingdoms have rewards. Both kingdoms have consequences. There's a reference there for you. The world boasts and believes nothing can touch it. Edom's hidden in the mountains of Seir and Basra and in Petra, thinking that it's impenetrable. I have no one, I have no need for anybody else to save me or take care of me. But we, though we look like we're unprotected, though we look like we are being cast down, though we look like at this point we're not winning, 
we're hidden in the fortress of God most high, just like the Israelites were. Perhaps we we become cast down for a time in this life, but we're not forsaken and we will not be destroyed because our hope is beyond death even. And so I have there for you an Exodus reference in chapter 15, and I'm going to turn there. God delivers the Israelites and the nations react to their being set free and what seemed impossible to their enemies. Have you ever considered what it must have looked like to Esau having watched from afar to see his his brother taken into Egypt and then eventually become slaves of the Pharaoh and then gone for 400 years and his brother must have scoffed and said, see, he should have trusted my ways. He should have come to a land of mountains and protection. He should have fought with his own strength and protected himself. God helps those who help themselves, right? Isn't that what we are told? And yet here we see in Exodus chapter 15, after they've been delivered across the Red Sea, there's a song that's written uh, in Exodus chapter 15 in verse 1. It says, Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. They were being chased by the horses of Pharaoh. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he threw them into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw the sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord? Among the gods, who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing mighty wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have chosen and redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people, and he's speaking of the nations that surround them, the people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia, the Philistines, right? That's where, that's where uh, the tribe from which we have Goliath. It says there that sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom, whom we just read about, or at least I talked about, will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will all be as a stone. 
till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. Not in Mount Seir, but in the mountain of God's inheritance. In the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. And we see evidence, by the way, of this prophecy on the mount of, of, of where, where the tabernacle is, where the temple is. There in Jerusalem is evidence of God's faithfulness. And so all that to say, it may seem like the flesh takes over and it rules and reigns, but the power of God is much more powerful even than the flesh that's within you. So we have to trust in that. So Lord Jesus, I thank you for the patience today. I thank you for the ability and the I'm excited about just seeing how you ultimately fulfill your promises no matter what can man do to us. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that if there's anybody here today, and there has to be because I'm here, that struggles with the flesh trying to rear its ugly head and run things, Lord, give us the faith to lay down our rights, to lay down our strength, to lay down our abilities and whatever we think is the strong, redeemable qualities of ourself and help us to trust in your strength and your protection and your deliverance and your salvation. Help us to do it in all the practical things. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your faithfulness. We look forward to seeing eternally what you're doing in our hearts right now and the fruit of that. Lord, produce in us something that only your spirit can produce. Give us the ability to love. Give us joy unspeakable. Give us the peace that passes understanding. Give us patience that makes no sense to the world, that the world would see that long suffering that we have and show your enemies even that your patience for them is is available. Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for that hope that comes from struggling against the world. And we just pray, Father, that you would continue to work in our hearts and our minds. Lord, that you'd revive us and send us back into the world to love the world just as you do. And we pray that you turn upside down this valley with the message of the gospel, set captives free, and help us to be able to identify with those who struggle with sin just as we do, but tell them we have the remedy. We have the sin killer. We have the the flesh killer. We have the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.